Hello everyone, my name is Sauro Civitillo and I'm an incoming assistant professor at the European Research Center on Migration and Ethnic Relations at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Being sensitive, acknowledging differences, mm-hmm. so celebrating and seeing diversity as something important is the first step. But the problem is that often we stop there. You cannot teach someone who you don't know. So you really need to invest time on that. Welcome to the Researching Diversity Podcast. We are Jana Fietze and Sabrina Alhanahi from the Erasmus University Rotterdam, and we will be your hosts for this episode. In this episode, we spoke with Sauro Civitillo, who is an incoming assistant professor at the European Research Center on Migration and Ethnic Relations at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. In this episode, it was inspiring to hear about Sauro's experiences as a first-generation student, meaning that he was the first one in his family to attend university and to follow an academic career. He talks about how his parents supported him and about the positive impact one of his teachers had by having high expectations of him. He also talks about the sudden choice to become a researcher at age 31 and how he got three master degrees showing his persistence in university. Sauro also discusses Gorski's article on the three types of multicultural approaches in education, namely the conservative approach, the liberal approach and the critical approach. The definitions are given, and we discuss which approach is most common in U.S. and in European education. We also talk about the difference between multicultural education and culturally responsive teaching, and Sauro gives some practical examples for higher education. Finally, we really enjoyed Sauro's emphasis on how important it is to have more research on culturally responsive teaching in Europe, and especially research being done by people with a family migration history. He discusses the need for more researchers, teachers, and teacher educators with a family migration history, because representation matters for all, and we all need role models. All right, let's start with the episode. So welcome, Sao, and thank you for being here. It's so nice to talk to you again because we have been colleagues for so long because we did our PhD together in Potsdam uh, with Linda Zhuang and the team. So it's wonderful to see you again in this uh, different setting. Yes, thank um, you for having me to be included in this wonderful podcast. As in every episode, we'll start talking about the past. Why did you become interested in the topic of multicultural education? Well, I will say I will start from why I really focus on, on teaching and my work indeed focusing on improving teaching. And uh, actually, the first reason is that it's a personal reason. My life as a teacher of mine in the high school had a huge impact in my life. Actually, I wanted to study psychology. I wanted to go to university. I knew that. But towards the end of school, I um, didn't do well. And I passed the final exam in school with a rather low grade. And so I wasn't sure anymore whether to go to university or not. And then there was a teacher, a high school teacher, who eventually convinced me to go to university. But most importantly, she helped me to believe in myself. And she mm-hmm. saw some academic potential. And um, yeah, we had a discussion where to go to university. She gave me a lot of tips, a lot of advices. And I still have a good relationship with that teacher. And so... Nice. Definitely that experience, having such a great teacher, has uh, influenced my life. I'm a first-generation student, so my parents have finished just uh, primary school. Uh, They absolutely valued education, but in that occasion, for instance, they weren't really 
ready to support me in that sense. So I wish every student could have a great teacher as I had in high school. That's really wonderful that you actually have such strong and positive memory attached to one specific teacher because that gives hope to all of us teachers that we can actually make a difference <laughs> for an individual student. I recognize the same uh, as Saurai. I had a teacher as well. That's really how he uh, describes it. You really remind yourself of these teachers that helped you, that saw potential in you. So one thing is that you were encouraged to go into the university. But then another question is, why did you become a researcher? Well, I actually, as I said, I wanted to study psychology, but I wanted to become a psychotherapist. So for me, it was mm -hmm. clear after finishing university, I'm going to go to therapy school and, and become a psychotherapist. But in the second year of my master in Rome, I uh, attended a seminar and there was a guest from the Netherlands, a professor who uh, presented a research project on the importance of inclusive education of children with educational special needs. Basically, this was a project that involves three countries, Italy, the Netherlands and Macedonia. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for also uh, students to collect the data in the Netherlands. And well, it was a very inspiring talk. And I said, well, why not? And then I got involved. <laughs> I basically spent eight months in, in the Netherlands and collected the data in 26 schools. I found this experience very inspiring because I kind of realized that doing research could reach a broader number of individuals than, you know, just doing a psychotherapy uh, at once with one person. But of course, I, you know, after that experience, I really wanted to become a researcher, but I wasn't really prepared. So I had just a few statistic classes in my bachelor. I had just one methodology class in the master. So I wasn't prepared. I still decided to, to study. So I obtained then a second master. I looked for PhD positions in the Netherlands, but I was never invited for an interview. And so I decided to do a third master, a research master in Nijmegen. Wow. And so, well, finally, after the third master, I felt uh, prepared at least to start PhD. And while well, I was also indeed uh, also successful to find one position at the University of Potsdam in Germany, well, then uh, since then, <laughs> I'm still doing uh, yeah, research. That sounds like a lot of commitment being in education and becoming a researcher. That's quite impressive. Definitely, I never gave up. I always, you know, I had this kind of dream. And so it was tough to admit that, you know, I needed to study more, that I couldn't really start working. So I did start my PhD when I was 31 years old, which was indeed, well, I was older than, than you, but than anyone else uh, at our institute. So, um, but yeah, again, I do not regret. And in the meantime, I also did other jobs, hmm, such as uh, dishwasher at three different restaurants. And <laughs> okay. I was a postman in the Netherlands. So you were really creative. <laughs> yeah, I was really creative. And, and I liked the fact that I was, you know, I did something else other than <laughs> being in academia. What did you learn from all these multiple experiences in these different jobs that helps you now in your current work? Well, uh, what did I learn? First of all, I did, you know, jobs that were physically demanding as my parents both did it. So I also could better understand their own experience. They were helpful at that time and they helped me to, again, to pursue my dream. So, and of course, I also learned other tasks. I learned how to wash dishes in a restaurant, <laughs> which is a quite challenging and stressful job. I knew all the streets in Nijmegen where I delivered posts. 
um, which turned out also to be very helpful. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, also, you know, to appreciate things. So I knew I wanted to become a researcher and I knew that that were kind of occupations that were just temporary, but still did it, uh, did it quite well. This brings us to our next section, the present. Which paper did you bring today? Well, today I brought the paper by Paul Goski, which is named What We Are Teaching Teachers, an Analysis of Multicultural Teacher Education Courseworks Syllabi. And if you had to explain this paper to your grandma, how would you do this? Well, I would say that teachers are not well prepared to university and teachers and training institutions to deal with the needs of our students. And how would then multicultural education, how would you explain that then? How can multicultural education be used to prepare teachers then? What would you say to your grandma? <laughs> well, um, multicultural education is probably an approach that could help students to become better citizens, to install some sort of critical understanding of reality in mm-hmm. our students. And why is this paper an outstanding paper? Well, this paper is a great paper because uh, I think it helps to shift the focus from an individual to a more institutional level. So it nicely shows that indeed there are many different ways uh, in which teacher training institutions implement or prepare teachers to deal with ethnic diversity in school. And, you know, sometimes we, we often blame teachers and schools for using rather superficial approach to ethnic and cultural diversity. Mm-hmm. And I think Paul Gorski helped us to shift the perspective and really rethink this assumption a little and focus yeah. on, on how teachers are indeed trained. And so when they, and during this crucial moment, which is initial teaching preparation. So this paper is about multicultural education, right? And multicultural educational approaches. Can you, before we start really talking about the paper, explain what multicultural education is? Well, uh, hard to do it. I mean, I will do my best. I think multicultural education is a philosophy of teaching, is a theory-based approach. It refers basically to educate uh, all students, but especially students from uh, marginalized groups. And yeah, it has, there are many, many scholars, uh, many, uh, mainly uh, US scholars, black scholars who in the 60s, 70s have helped to develop this theory. And then also other scholars, such as Professor Geneva Gay, who actually try to, uh, based on multicultural education, they also try to move in a more practical level to multicultural mm-hmm. education and develop pedagogical approaches, such as culture responsive teaching. It's a branch, it's a pedagogical arm of uh, multicultural education and also try to seek to implement uh, multicultural education in, uh, on a daily basis in classrooms, yeah. basically. Nice. Thank you for a good explanation. And if I wrap it up, it's multicultural education and culturally responsive teaching are both, their goal is to create equal opportunities, right? And to eliminate inequities in education. Yes, I mean, CRT, uh, so culture responsive teaching, the idea is that what students now learn is basically something that is filtered through the cultural lens of mm-hmm. uh, mainly one group, and the yeah. ethnic majority group. Mm-hmm. And the CRT intends to complement this approach to uh, teach students from marginalized groups in the same way mm-hmm. ethnic minority students are taught in school. 
So also try to incorporate their own background experiences, ethnic and cultural heritage, and to teach them more effectively. Effectively, yeah. meaning not just an academic level, or, mm-hmm. um, but also culture-responsive teaching plays an emphasis on personal skills, on civic mm-hmm. engagement, on civic skills, yeah. on critical consciousness. So yeah. uh, it goes beyond just focusing uh, mainly on academic outcomes. And what about Paul Gorski? What, what does he say about multicultural education? I think, you know, there are many different ways indeed to implement uh, multicultural education. I think in this 45 syllabi, uh, Gorski identified, found uh, different approaches. I think the main, the dominant approach in the United States, at least, in which multicultural education is implemented, is what Polgoski called teaching with cultural sensitivity and tolerance. So in this respect, multicultural is seen just as something focusing on respecting diversity, celebrating differences, celebrating diversity. This type of syllabi basically prepare teachers just to respect or tolerate their students. This type of approach is basically missing completely then the consideration for educational inequalities. I think about 60%, so it's almost two-thirds of this syllabi indeed implement such, I would say, superficial way of thinking about multicultural education. And by syllabi, he did actually look into teacher education programs and there what we, we could also call this like curricula or what did he actually analyze? These were syllabi for teacher education on multicultural education and similar topics. Basically, he assessed the official curriculum of multicultural education. So what you could, um, basically the learning goals, uh, the learning, yeah, the learning goals that were set in this uh, syllabi. So basically what teacher training institutions uh, in theory do to prepare teachers to address the needs of their students. And were it only the learning goals or was it also scanning books, for instance? Or Well, I think it's from reading the article is not super clear, but mm-hmm. I think it's checking learning goals, uh, briefly the content. Of course, also he clarified that then uh, we don't know what then these teacher educators did in classroom, right? So it might be that, you know, if my university provides me this type of uh, syllabus, with certain learning goals, then behind the door, I can teach or talk about different topics. So we don't know that. I mean, he, he basically just somehow focused and analyzed the, um, what were considered the, the official uh, guidelines that were present in this syllabi. So Migorski mentions three types of approaches that are common in education, right? You talked about teaching with cultural sensitivity and tolerance. That's the one that's the most common. Can you explain the three approaches that are present? Yeah, I think one other approach that Gorski identified reflected the so-called teaching the other. Mm-hmm. So these were a syllabi in which some sort of othering language was used. So for instance, yeah, the teachers or pre-service teachers will learn more about African-American students, mm-hmm. will learn more about uh, Native American students. Mm-hmm. So this perspective from the white majority and seeing, okay, you are learn something about the others, so diverse, so not mm-hmm. really also considered almost a U.S. citizen. And other type of examples that he categorized in this teaching the other 
where syllabidate presented non-dominant groups as some sort of homogeneous groups, so with little, little variation. So everyone that's different from American is the other, for instance, people of color, right? I think this was still a minority of syllabi, but still 20% of the syllabi that he analyzed. And then the third approach, which is um, somehow more, uh, it's more close to the original idea of multicultural education, is basically composed by two approaches that Egoski identify. So one is teaching in social political context. And the second one is teaching as a resistance and counter-hegemonic practice. So these are somehow the syllabi that are more in line with the core beliefs of multicultural education. And why is that one? So this is what Gorski calls the critical multiculturalist approach, right? Uh, why is that one the most multicultural education? Well, basically because I think in his view, in these approaches so were designed to, to engage pre-service teachers in a more critical examination of both psychological and sociopolitical relationships and between teaching, schooling, education. So more critical reflection on inequalities in the United States, reflection on institutional discrimination, yeah, reflection on structural barriers such mm -hmm. as poverty that many students in the United States uh, face. And so focusing more on this sociopolitical dimension of multicultural education mm -hmm. and also at the same time centering the idea that teachers do not just convey the content, but teachers are some sort of agent for political change. So yeah. we recognize that education is, is political. This, again, these two approaches were found in about one fifth. So it's still a small proportion of syllabi but indeed resemble more closely the original core beliefs of multicultural education. In this article of Paul Gorski, he says that critical multiculturalist approach uh, resembles most multicultural education or the core findings of the core elements of multicultural education. But don't you think that the other approaches, for instance, the liberal multiculturalist, where it is more about teaching with cultural sensitivity and tolerance, is needed to become a critical teacher, a critical multiculturalist to identify and eliminate educational inequalities? Because if you don't have this cultural sensitivity and this multicultural competences, how can you then identify or eliminate inequalities in education? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think this being sensitive, uh, acknowledging differences, mm -hmm. so celebrating and seeing diversity is something important, is the first step. Yeah. But the problem is that often we stop there, right? We so we, there. we don't really uh, go beyond celebrating diversity or, yeah. or acknowledging differences. So I think Gorski and also other critical uh, scholars in the CRT of multicultural education feel indeed criticize this aspect that it's fine celebrating mm -hmm. diversity, but it's simply not enough. Yeah, it's not enough. So it is needed, but to go a step further, that is crucial. And do you think that the results in the United States are the same as in Europe? Would this be the same context? Yeah, absolutely. Context? I think if we had conducted the same study in, in Germany, in the Netherlands, or any other European countries, we would probably find similar results. Even though uh, maybe one difference from the European context is that uh, many teacher education institutions, at least in Germany, where I have lived and did research for some years, still in 2022, do not have a coursework 
or a seminar on multicultural education. And when it is provided, sometimes it's just an elective course. So it's yeah. not mandatory or it's not just basically included in the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Right? It's something that the students... Well, who, additional, right? Right. It's students who already maybe yeah. are really motivated uh, mm-hmm. to learn more, then they you know, ended up following these seminars or these coursework. And again, also the problem is that oftentimes it's just one isolated course activity. So it's basically not included in, for instance, if I learn how to become a math or science teacher, mm-hmm. I mean, in all my didactic classes, I will not learn anything about diversity. So yeah, then I'm okay. supposed to take another course to learn something, but then with the idea that, you know, it's not implemented in the way in which I learn how to provide science lessons. Uh, so, um, and that's an issue because teacher education is often divided in different departments. And mm-hmm. so uh, we have the Department of Diversity or the group that's research and diversity that push these topics, but then all the didactical parts basically um, yeah, simply ignore that these are important and relevant yeah. issues because, for instance, I mentioned math and science, mm-hmm. we think that these are subjects that are cultural free. But yeah, that's unfortunately not true, right? No, so. Yeah, I really, I love because I recognize from my own research when I was facilitator in a group of teachers and there was a math teacher and an economics teacher. So they really said, well, how can I become culturally responsive in my discipline? I, this is not about culture. So that's why I was why I was laughing. So I really recognize what you say. When I did my study, I conducted some video observation in classrooms. I also followed one science teacher. And one day there was a topic about uh, cities. So how cities develop and how, you know, were created. And then at a certain point, the teacher was explaining how you define a big city, a metropolitan area. And mm-hmm. then she provided also some numbers or, or, and I always remember when I uh, started uh, studying in Nijmegen and I met a Chinese mate and he told me, uh, well, where are you from? I said, I'm from Italy, from a very small town. And he told me, well, I'm also from a small town in China. And he was about 6 million people. And my small town was 70,000 people. <laughs> and, but, you know, I realized that we had a very different ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, of what really is small, a big, yes. small, <laughs> medium or metropolitan area. Yeah, true. Uh, but of course, I, I had in mind my, you know, cultural frame that for me, a small town is 70,000 inhabitants. Yeah. We are considering that in China, 6 million is considered <laughs> a small village. So, and I remember that in class, there was not such a discussion. So somehow, you know, how also, how we define a big city metropolitan area is also uh, derived by my uh, cultural understanding. Yeah, true. Nice example. Thank you. Yeah, how did this paper impact your work or your way of thinking? Well, definitely as a teacher educator, I've been thinking a lot about what I teach to my students because Mm -hmm. I had the fortune to teach pre-service teachers starting to become primary school teachers, but also in secondary school teachers. Mm-hmm. So I had both and constantly discussing these issues with them. I think this paper helped me to be more critical about what I'm doing, mm-hmm. because probably, especially in the beginning, I was probably also focusing just on uh, respecting diversity and being tolerant. And then it was a process and still a process slowly I moved more talking about issues such as uh, racism and discrimination. 
So mm-hmm. topics that are not easy to discuss uh, with students. These are topics not easy to discuss with sensitive uh, topics. Also yeah. students, uh, students in school, uh, yeah. uh, sensitive topic in a way, but also it helped to engage in such uh, discussion. And then I also started using the case studies that uh, Paul Goski uh, developed, which by the way is a wonderful teaching uh, resource and um, case studies for social justice. He wrote two books and I um, basically used um, some of his case studies. I adapted them to the German context and I use it in my teaching and with wonderful results because it really helps to also make the connection between theory and practice. Mm-hmm. And because when we talk about, you know, when we talk about social political consciousness or multicultural education, sometimes it's, there is this feeling that Well, you know, I, I, it's hard to figure out what we really talk about. And yeah. then with these case studies, you have a very practical situation, a very concrete situation to discuss. And then you reflect uh, with your students about you know, yeah. possible uh, interpretations, possible solutions. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, at the same time, providing us with an overview of the definitions and of the overall concept of multicultural education, but also you made a very nice point of immediately applying it to our education, how we teach teachers at the university, but also of how then those future teachers will teach their students. So there's several layers uh, in here, right, of using a multicultural education and cultural sensitive teaching. And this brings us to our next section, the future. So what changes would you like to see in the upcoming years regarding research on these topics, I would say, educational, uh, multicultural education and cultural sensitive teaching? Well, first, I would like to see more research in the European context, <laughs> because, I mean, this paper that we just discussed, yeah, it was a paper conducted in the United States. I'm not aware of similar papers, even though I know that uh, Charlene is working on a similar topic. Charlene Pevich, yeah? Yes, in, uh, yes. Yeah. I'm doing a similar study in Germany. So we definitely need more input in the European context. We have very few research groups. And I mean, Sabrina, uh, you, Jana, in, in, in Rotterdam, I know some scholars in Finland, in Greece, in Germany, to be honest, I really don't know anyone else who uh, does research on cultural responsive teaching, except in the Juan's group. But so I definitely would like to see more research on uh, CRT. I mean, we do have a lot of research on intercultural competence, yeah. <laughs> uh, which, yeah, it's, uh, again, it's at this level of becoming aware of diversity, but not really yeah. moving forward. This is really the first step before you become a culturally responsive teacher. Yes. And putting it into practice. And also often measured on the student side, right? So yeah. we actually measure a lot on what yeah. is the outcome on the student side? How do they benefit from teaching? But then we're missing the whole insights into what is happening on the side of the teacher, on the delivery and so on, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, so how to do that? Well, if you think about also researchers in Europe who do research on this topic, also either people of color, uh, researchers who have a migration experience or who have been away from their own country for a while. <laughs> so, I mean, my point is that definitely uh, we need to do more research on that, but then we need to have uh, 
researchers who indeed also represent these groups. Yeah. Because also, if you think about multicultural education and cultural sponsored teaching, thanks to black scholars uh, in the 60s, 70s, who were the first challenging this deficit perspective, this pathological perspective about different groups, they could really then develop and include these new insights. So we also need scholars from uh, different groups. And again, it's, a, it's very hard and you already discussed these topics in previous episodes. I mean, I'm more radical in the sense that I had only research assistants here in these four years in Essen, and I had about 10 research assistants and all except two from different groups. So I basically also in the advertisement, I asked for these groups. So I was really seeking actively these groups. And I think after a while, you know, after I had my, my group, then I know that whenever we had another position, people applied for my group because they were aware that, well, it's it's possible also for me to work in such yeah. uh, such environment. Because it was a heterogeneous group. That's what you mean, right? Yes, yes, yes. I had research assistants with Turkish heritage, with heritage from Angola, from Vietnam, from Afghanistan, from Syria. So um, really actively seeking for these students. Yeah. So we definitely need to have more of these uh, scholars if we want to bring different perspectives, if we want them to also to uh, use these theories. And that, yeah, I would say scholars from ethnic majority groups may perceive it as a bit intimidating in a way. And what do you think? How can we at the university, as the teachers that we are, how can we implement cultural responsive teaching quite like immediately or practically? And also, well, how does this then translate to our own students who will become teachers? What are the starting points to say, well, have a look maybe at this aspect of the curriculum or, yeah, what would be your advice? Well, I think it's definitely more challenging to make culture responsive teaching at university level than primary or high school for one reason, because you don't get to know uh, your students. And I think one of the basic assumptions of culture responsive teaching, for example, is that you cannot teach some who you don't know. So you really need to invest time on that. And at the university, the type of relationship that you have with your students is very different, right? Well, as a teacher, already talking about these issues or presenting these theories, in my view, is already very helpful. So to provide readings that indeed discuss or present research on these topics is certainly important. Of course, many times these readings are in English. <laughs> this is also a topic mm -hmm. of discussion with uh, my students because they would like to see or to read more literature in German. But unfortunately, there are not many uh, research output on, on these topics in German. Yeah, also bring some practical examples on how to become, on how to be a culture responsive teaching. I mean, we could offer also another example, for instance, the importance of critically uh, examining the learning materials mm -hmm. that as a future teachers use in their classroom. We know that textbooks are historically also used as a way to uh, foster certain stereotypes. And so I think teachers could, may have the ability to choose critically or to somehow signal uh, whatever they, they find and uh, these stereotypes, these deficit views uh, about groups. So uh, think about uh, history textbooks, but also science textbooks. I mean, also one example, when I moved to Germany, I uh, I was enrolled in a German class. And I remember at the, a very well-known institute in Berlin, 
we had a textbook in which we had some characters, right? So every chapter had, you know, you, you get to read this uh, discussion dialogues between these characters. And one character was Antonio, was a stereotypical Italian, was a pizza maker. <laughs> and I remember that every time we kind of laugh about this character with my fellows. And I mean, of course, I was laughing <laughs> with them. You know, I'm also grew up and, and I'm a, uh, I have uh, many privileges in my life, so uh, I'm definitely not the one who exposed to discrimination stereotypes. But still, uh, if you think about uh, it, was such obvious <laughs> case of stereotype. And so, um, you know, the idea that, okay, also what we use in our uh, daily teaching uh, should be uh, yeah, seen critically. So this already a uh, kind of example, very practical example of how to be a culturally responsive teacher. Yeah, I, at least at Erasmus University, where Sabrina and I work, we have a lot of student initiatives who uh, really strongly ask for uh, decolonizing our reading lists and uh, our textbooks. And so we really see a strong urge from our university student side to actually <laughs> address this and to uh, become active. So I think that also tells you that it's not only in theory a good idea, but that the future professionals, they see a strong need in their education to be educated in a more diverse and a more broad way. And I think that's also a good sign. <laughs> I think also that at the Erasmus University that education is a bit different eh, from other universities. It's more in small groups. So that I think that if at university or in high school uh, there are small groups, you get to know your students and then you, you can also become more culturally responsive. Yeah, and I also see quite a chance also in thinking along the lines of participatory research, right? So to actually really, as you already said, include various students with different backgrounds into the research group but also just into, I guess, analyzing the curriculum and identifying the points that are not inclusive or stereotyping or these kind of things. I see quite some possibilities there as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Once we have uh, different groups, I mean, new research questions are easily then uh, generated. Yeah, so insights that uh, probably uh, will never come up if we had just uh, one homogeneous group of individuals. Yeah. And which future challenges do you see in trying to create more cultural responsive teaching opportunities or actually even start implementing multicultural education as a theory in the European teaching context? Yeah, I think the main challenge is to, uh, I think nowadays there is a need, I mean, everyone is aware that there is a need. But then, yeah, still we have very, um, in terms of representations, as I said before, there are still very limited progress. So, I mean, I don't know how to, uh, yeah, other than having <laughs> more scholars from different groups or other than pushing these ideas, I hardly, I don't know actually the answer to this question. So, yeah, maybe, you know, we're talking about heterogeneous groups, about other students with a migration background or researchers with a migration background, but also the, let's say that the majority groups can be trained in or can be made conscious about privilege, about differences, about how to become culturally responsive. So I think that would also, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not saying that, you know, we should just, yeah, that only educators um, who have migration experience or educators mm -hmm. of color 
should be entitled of teaching uh, future generations of teachers. Mm -hmm. But I think to somehow, yeah, to really change the status quo, it's probably, uh, we, we need them. I mean, we, mm -hmm. you know, it's also, it's a matter of some democratic aspects that speak in favor of having also the university, also among teacher educators, more diverse folks that are somehow different because we need representations. Representations matter. We know that. I mean, role models, you mean? Role models, but these are, these are our citizens. And of course, they also need to stay in roles that have leadership uh, yeah. and they also need to Yeah, so I mean, we, we, there is a discourse, is a narrative that we should diversify our teachers a lot, but we don't discuss really the same thing uh, among teacher educators. Because if it is true that teachers are mainly from one group, ethnic majority group, mm -hmm. for teacher educators, we, we see that this diversity is, is absent, basically. It's just uh, 0,0%. Uh, so, yeah. Again, also the, the, the paper of Gorski indeed um, indirectly challenged this idea. Well, thank you for your uh, your insights uh, about the changes that you would like to see in the upcoming years. Uh, you said that you would like to have more research on cultural responsive teaching, uh, but also that we need more diverse researchers, uh, heterogeneous groups to work on this topic and also more research in Europe or in contexts outside of the United States. And what changes would you like to see in the upcoming years regarding academia in general? Well, I believe that next to increase the number of underrepresented scholars in academia, another radical change I would like to see is how we use funding. We know now that scholars often need grants to cover their cost of their work. And it is also true that universities consider funding when they have to hire, for instance, a professor. And nowadays, we know, uh, we have some empirical evidence, at least from the United States, that show that uh, black scholars are less likely to receive external funding compared to white scholars. Why? Because of the topics that they are uh, interested in. For instance, uh, health disparities or the methods that they propose. Huh? For instance, using uh, community interventions, these are considered less appealing than more traditional uh, methods and topics. And that is also why they are less likely to be funded. And again, uh, in my view, we should also radically change how we distribute grant funding, because if we want to increase but also retain uh, scholars from underrepresented groups, we also have to uh, give the opportunity to fund them. Well, that brings us to the final question. How do you stay motivated in your job as a researcher? Well, I love my job for many reasons. I think the first one is that you get to do different things all the time. So mm -hmm. now I'm, I'm preparing for this podcast here with you. This week I spent some time grading portfolios of my students. At the same time, you know, I did a reviewer for a paper. And next week I will focus on writing book chapter with a colleague, then we have classes. So, I mean, this variety of tasks is really something very, very attractive for me because you don't get to do the same thing over and over, but you're always constantly doing different things. So as an academic, you're really like, you have a challenging job by doing different things at yes. the same time. <laughs> yes. Uh, it yes. is never the same, right? Never the same. <laughs> And I also love this learning aspect, right? So you, you get to know or learn new things every day. 
mm-hmm. uh, which basically, I don't know, if you read the paper of, of a colleague or you, you learn a new approach to analyze your data, you learn from a discussion with your students. So this uh, learning aspect is also very attractive for me because it keeps me constantly focused on different things, but also yeah. Yeah, I feel this is a, it's a process of enrichment on a daily basis. And then, yeah, another aspect that really keeps me motivated is, well, the opportunity to meet other people from different parts of the world. And mm-hmm. I met uh, great mentors, great colleagues and during these years, great students. And how do you meet these people? Like uh, through conferences? Or well, through... not only to conferences. I mean, you know, once you, you know, I have studied in different universities, but I also worked in different universities. So this is, yeah. will be my fourth different institution and yeah of course conferences are are nice as well but um, yeah through different ways so just because they work in the same environment but also through collaborations or through this podcast for example example. thank you uh, Sarah this brings us to the end thank you for joining us today and for helping us increase visibility of outstanding social scientists as yourself and of cutting edge research thank you all for listening and talk soon We want to thank Minor Revisions for the music, Max Kersten for post-production, Lotte Koeman for logo design, and Zeynep Alpai for artwork. Make sure to visit our website for bonus materials and to follow us on social media at Researching Diversity Podcast. Stay tuned and talk soon. Music